And when shit things happen, are you going to lie on the road and cry or are you going to get up and get your heels and makeup on and deal with it? Welcome back to 40 Minute Mentor, the podcast on a mission to raise aspirations and inspire the next generation of category-defining founders. From purpose-led entrepreneurs to Olympic champions, you'll learn firsthand from today's successful leaders on what it takes to be brilliant, all in just 40 minutes. Today is our final episode of Series 10, and for this special series finale, we're joined by multi-exited entrepreneur Debbie Wozkow OBE. Over the years, Debbie has built and exited some incredible businesses, including PR and marketing consultancy Mantra, sold in 2007, Love Home Swap, sold in 2017, and most recently, Albright, the leading career network for women, which he exited in 2022. Debbie's entrepreneurial journey is far from complete, however, as she's back in the founder seat of WJV LLP, a boutique investment and strategic innovation firm. Plus, she's also an investor and co-founder of The Better Menopause, empowering women's performance at midlife through science-backed products. As you can probably tell, there is so much for us to dive into in today's episode. So a final time this series, welcome to 40 Minute Mentor, Debbie. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me. The pleasure is all mine. Well, we're going to get you warmed up, although I know you've done many podcasts before, so this I'm sure will be a walk in the park for you, but we'll get you warmed up with a few quick fire questions. So please finish the following sentences after me. First up, I grew up wanting to be... Well, I grew up wanting to be an entrepreneur. That sounds very trite, doesn't it? But it's true. And we can build on that perhaps a bit in the conversation about whether entrepreneurs are born or made, but I always wanted to do my own thing. I love that. I think you're one of the first people to actually say that. So that's amazing. (laughs) Question two, the last time I was scared was when? Oh, I'm terribly scared of heights. And I was taking a very high building by my son. So that's a bit shameful. Shameful secret. (laughs) No, my mum is exactly the same. We went up the CN Tower when I was uh, about 15. And never have I heard somebody (laughs) so terrified when they went on the kind of see-through floor. So I completely get that. The most memorable day in my career was? Exits, the actual day when you sell the business and you get to tell the team and your investor base and everybody who's been on the journey with you that you got there and the money's in the bank. That's a big day. That's a sleepless night the night before and a strange feeling on the day. Yeah, I can imagine. And you've done it more than most. So uh, looking forward to delving more into that. My biggest failure to date is... Every business that I've founded has been on the brink of disaster. And I think one of the big lessons is that the business you think you're starting is never the business that you finish with. And you've just got to be open to a lot of change. Pivot is horribly overused as a word, but you have to really be able to have no emotional attachment to the original idea or the idea as it changes. Yeah, that's such good advice. Thank you. And finally, if there was one thing I could change about entrepreneurship, it would be? More women. And it's going to be a big theme for me, but post the pandemic, only 1% of capital in the UK goes to back a female entrepreneur. We're near the bottom of a lot of global league tables and 
my lifetime of entrepreneurship, which is coming up for 25 years, the stats have got worse and not better. And that's a big thing that needs to change. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. It's very, very depressing. Well, looking forward to talking more about that and hopefully uh, seeing real change on that point in the year ahead. as something we've talked a lot about on this podcast. So excited to delve further in. Thank you, Debbie. It's already very exciting to have you on the podcast. I think we know a few of the same people and I've kind of watched from afar your incredible career. So can't wait to delve into it. But before we get into the exits and all the exciting learnings from that, I'd love to start at the, the younger Debbie. You mentioned that you wanted to become an entrepreneur. So tell us a bit about your upbringing and what a younger Debbie was like. Well, I think it's quite hard to mark your own homework in terms of your upbringing until you get a bit older, wiser. And I definitely find doing something like writing a book, which I did in 2019 with my Albright co-founder, Anna Jones, and also doing therapy makes you quite reflective on why you're the person that you are now. I grew up in a very entrepreneurial family. They would never have used that word because that's quite a fancy word. But I grew up in a Jewish immigrant family, third generation Everybody around my kitchen table talked about business and talked about money, the women as well as the men. And I didn't realize how unusual it was to have a grandmother and a mother who ran their own businesses. They were entrepreneurs. My grandmother, who died age 97, um, ran a chain of sweet shops and off licenses in the north of England and was a formidable woman. My childhood memories were spent driving around in her armored van dropping money off at the bank which she never learned how to reverse which is something we have in common because I'm a neutral driver so I think all of those things you just take for granted I think I took for granted that women could be mothers I'm one of five siblings but also run businesses and there was no gender divide around that at all and I also didn't have anyone in my family who went to do a job to work for someone else in the whole of my extended family, which I think is a very immigrant culture. And I think the other thing that's important to immigrant families is academic excellence. That's just non-negotiable. So I think there's two pillars around understanding money and how it was earned, there being no gender divide around that and seeing that hard work was really important um, were a massive part of my upbringing. And so some of the stuff that I now think about with my own children, because I'm a mum of two teenagers, draws a lot on that actually because we always talk about work and we talk about money and they've had a strange life because they've always come to work with me and all sorts of crazy things over the years. And I think it's important because I think it de-risks it and de-risking it, particularly for women, is part of how we change the conversation around more women starting their own businesses. Totally. No, that's super interesting. And I, I think I read somewhere that you started your first step into entrepreneurship alongside kind of, I guess, seeing it over the table every day was uh, age 15 selling scrunchies, which is a, a very cool idea. Now, I was the 18. Okay. Apparently. <laughs> yeah, I was the, you know, the national winner of Young Enterprise. I mean, it's sort of a bit cheesy, Young Enterprise. It still goes on, but it was a really important thing to do because we formed a business and I was the CEO and we sold the thing and we sold it in supermarkets and we did it. So all that stuff gives you a real sense of the basic economics of work. And I'm a very simple entrepreneur and I'm sure you've had lots of people on this podcast and in your world of work who are more complex than I am, but I'm very driven by building something that costs me less money than I can sell it for. <laughs> and I still check the bank account every day and I'm really obsessed with margin and performance and targets and that just comes from doing it at a really young age and my first business when I was 25 
if you're running any sort of consultancy or agency business, you're always two client wins away from greatness and two client losses away from disaster. And the way that you really shape the economics of that business is to be very, very focused on controlling margin. And I learned that making scrunchies. Yeah, really interesting to get that exposure. And it's an interesting segue. We've had a lot of people on this podcast talking about the importance of giving children more exposure to entrepreneurship and making it a a more viable career path. It's something that I wish I'd have had. I kind of fell into entrepreneurship, I guess, but I would have loved to have learned more about this sort of stuff at school and didn't really feel that equipped for a lot of the things that I basically made mistakes around in the first years of JBM. You've been surrounded by entrepreneurs all your life and it's clearly had this incredible impact on you and dictated the path that you followed. Would you agree that this is something we need to bring into schools we need to expose the youth of today to more founders like how would you do things if you were in government well yeah I mean I've done a lot of work advising government and I'm on the mayor of London's business board so these are very live conversations for me you know absolutely and that's across the board when we talk about education so my children are privileged enough to be at posh schools they get a reasonable amount of it my son more than my daughter who's at a boys school they get to do things like pitch days and you know that they're very encouraged to do that but we know that that's not the same across the piece and we also know that the basics that drove my business success in my first business I had no understanding of because I studied philosophy and theology at Oxford and I'm a nerd were to do with P&L cash flow balance sheet nobody I'd never had any experience around that how to sell which you know innately I'm a salesperson but I learned a lot about that and how to drive culture performance and lead a team, which at 25 and a girl is really hard. And this is 25 years ago because I'm nearly 50. So all of those things I think we don't even touch upon and they're hard and soft skills, some of which maybe you can only learn on the job. But I think also in my career lifetime, entrepreneurship has become sexy whether that's the Zuckerberg effect or whatever, when I left Oxford in 1995, you were either a lawyer, a management consultant, as I became an accountant, or you did the Unilever graduate scheme. You know, those were the sort of roots. Yeah. I think this sense in which you go to work in a startup, or my son now at 15, who's totally obsessed with Vice and Vox and wants to be a citizen journalist, and he's all about how do I get exposure? That just wasn't how we thought about things. Because I think there was a real drive to professionalization. I think as that shifts, then equipping children with those skills matters. And I find in my life with girls and girls education, you you know, I was at an all-girls school. My daughter's at an all-girls school. I'm a big believer in that route to build confidence and resilience in girls. But I do know that there's far less exposure to some of those basic skills around business. And that, again, is how we get to girls quickly. Because if you look at the data around young men and young women, there's a confidence gap that emerges, you know, really even preteen around talking and thinking about maths and money. And we've got to address that. Yeah, 100%. No, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts on that. It was a bit of tricky writing your question set because you've had such a successful career and there's so much to talk about. So I thought maybe we could start, Debbie, with um, with you just walking us through uh, a sort of whistle-stop tour of the different businesses that you've built. And I'd particularly love to kind of understand a bit about the different chapters because it's one thing building a business in your, your 20s when you've, you know, it's the first big business you, you've maybe built versus the later part of your life or, or entrepreneurial journey. So do you mind 
mind just giving us a bit of a whistle stop tour and then we can dig in some different bits? Yeah, sure. So I started life as a management consultant and I set up my first business at 25. That was a comms and marketing agency in dot-com one. And the reason for doing that was there's that very overused analogy around in the gold rush, the people that make the money provide the picks and shovels. In 1999, when I founded my first business, I think it was really the first time and we see it now a lot because of social media and influencers and content platforms where young people and their ability to ideate and execute on businesses was really prized. And a lot of the people I knew were starting startups, you know, in dot-com one. So being part of that was really amazing. It was really hard. There was a massive market crash 18 months after we founded the business. We learned everything on the job. I would say that those types of businesses are a brilliant first business because they're quite grubby. You've really got to be in the weeds of invoicing and pricing and chasing it down and culture and selling. And, you know, it was a really good first business and it was also really fun, but hard. And we sold that in 2007, which was also the year that I had my first child. And my next adventure was to co-found Maythorn Partners with a, a great friend of mine called Simon Walker, who had been head of strategy at the BBC. And out of that came lots of different ideas, this sort of thinking, which I suppose is where a bit where I am now, which is you can always do advisory work, but out of that comes ideas for businesses. And if you can put your own money and bring other people's money into those and incentivize great talent as leaders, then you can have more of a portfolio. We had a couple of businesses out of that, one of which was a participation sports platform around the Olympics where we bought up some rights and added some community. And another of which was what became Love Home Swap, which was a home exchange for holidays platform at the beginning of the advent of the sharing economy. And the idea for that, the sort of genesis, which I've told more times than I care to remember, but I think it's worth emphasizing because it shows inspiration can strike at any time. You just have to be open to it. It sounds a bit hippie-ish and I'm not a sort of, I don't live or die by the secret or by sort of manifestation, but I do think you have to grasp opportunities with both hands when you feel them. And I go quite a lot on gut as well as numbers. And Love Home Swap was because I'd watched the movie The Holiday on a Plane, which you may or may not have seen, but where Cameron Diaz swaps homes with Kate Winslet, it's the ultimate Christmas movie, and thought, does that even exist? Because if it does, I'd just been away when my children were tiny, sort of two and three months or something. And that's the kind of experience I wish that I had had. And it was the very early days of Airbnb. And when we raised money for the business, we were told nobody would ever stay in a stranger's home. And I think that that shows also that zeitgeist can shift pretty fast, both positively and negatively. Because I rode out that sharing economy wave from the sharing, caring economy to the gig economy being the root of all evil and, you know, very anti-workers' rights and pay and a lot of complexity. I suppose that business was also about one of the other things that I really care about, which is having a political voice with a small P. I've always been brought up to believe you have to stand for something. And if you can, you should. These things can get you into trouble a bit. But I feel like being the voice of entrepreneurship as part of a conversation around politics and policy really matters. And I've done a lot of that over the last decade. And I led the government review of the sharing economy in the UK. I'm the author of the Wasco report. Um, that looked at self-regulation for that industry. And that's a sort of continuing theme for me to have a voice and particularly be a female voice, which is still unusual, unfortunately. And I sold that business in 2017 to Wyndham, the hotel group. Also was really fortunate to work with my brother, Ben, in the business, which was great and a big 
just a great joy actually and a big lovely thing about working with family and then after that I co-founded Albright with the amazing Anna Jones who I continue to work with who was the CEO of Hearst and there's a lot to say about that business but maybe two things I'll pull out the first is this theme again around serendipity um, I met AJ as this her stage name at a party that I almost didn't go to because I couldn't really be bothered and somebody I didn't really know said the two of you should be friends and so a big part of the reason why the pandemic was so hard in a minimum ways, um, not least very hard on that business because we had a lot of physical space exposure, but because it took away our ability to make serendipitous connections. Everything good that's ever happened in my career has been because of some random person that I've met or known, and you're in the business of that. Networks really matter. Women's networks are not as big as men's, and that's why we founded Albright. Albright was a beast. You know, it had a very purpose-driven objective. It's hard to combine purpose with profit. Um, they don't, they're not always happy bedfellows. And sometimes it's difficult to land the message, you know, um, particularly if it's around economic empowerment for women. People can get confused and think it's a charity. It was a great privilege to run that business. It was amazing and awful in every hour, probably. You know, hard in the pandemic. We built a digital platform from our living rooms. I think it made a difference. We also invested a venture capital fund to back female entrepreneurs and ran an education up. Like it was a monster. And we exited the business at the end of last year. And there's a new management team running it for private equity. And that was a different kind of exit as well, which I think is interesting to go through that because I've always taken it to the very end. This time we didn't. And now in 2023, kind of stirring down the barrel of 50 doing quite a lot of work on thinking about what do I stand for now and how do I execute on my triangles simplistically, have fun, make money, don't work with assholes. Not always easy to pull all three off at the same time. Love working with AJ. So we have this platform called The Better Life Company. And out of that, you mentioned some of the businesses. We do a piece of work that helps connect female venture capital funds with money, with pension funds and family offices. We've given birth to a business called The Better Menopause, which we think is really important to raise awareness, but also develop science-driven products and supplements that help perimenopause or menopausal women, because we're all going to go through it. Men need to understand it too. And we're very focused on diversity, health, wellness, economic empowerment. Those are our pillars with more to come. And we wrote a book that was a bestseller and about to do another one. And I think the focus for us now is on having a better life and mastering the art of reinvention because we care about men, but we really care about women and our careers are linear and we can reinvent ourselves. We need to reinvent ourselves as we hit our forties and fifties. And I think we can be a powerful voice for showing how we're doing that and encouraging other women to do that through getting rich, right? We're not like, I love the charity work I do. I'm on the board of the Women's Prize for Fiction. You know, I do lots of, but really I have one single objective, which is I want to make money and I want other women to make money because if we make money and we invest our money in backing other women, then we can change the conversation around um, diversity and economic empowerment. Totally. It's really is an incredible story. And there's so many bits of what you just said that resonate with me from the holiday being a Mitra family sort of religion almost. <laughs> Every Christmas we watch it <laughs> to the importance of serendipity and networks. And it's very important to the JBM story. But no, thank you so much for sharing that. I obviously want to dive into some different bits, but you've kind of built 
different businesses at different stages of your career that have all been super successful, but I know it's not all been perfect. So there's been, as you mentioned earlier, many failures along the way. Can I ask you, in terms of the, it is a never-ending roller coaster founder life, but yet you keep going again and again, which is just amazing for me because I've always said, oh, I don't think I can do it again after 11 years. Where do you get that resilience from? And also, because there's going to be a lot of people saying, oh, well, yeah, you've exited all these businesses, but can we talk through some of the challenges you face? Because I think it's really important to, to sort of bring that to life for anyone that might be going through a difficult time in their founder journey at the moment. Yeah. So the going again, for a long time, I didn't know how to do anything else. I mean, I've had a job, actual job for three years of my life, right? So I only know how to do this thing. And it brings me energy and I'm very impatient and I get bored easily. And I think that's also what's driven the sort of push and go again that, you know, I have some friends who I really admire who founded a business 20 years ago and they're still running it. That's just not me. Part of it, I think, is because as well as being sort of itchy, impatient, restless, I'm a B2C, D2C entrepreneur. And that generally means that the cheapest way to build the brand of the business is me because I am the brand of the business. And that means you end up feeling like a stand-up comedian in need of some new material. Whilst I love talking about the holiday, I mean, thousands and thousands and thousands of times, right? So some of it's just that, I think. What I'm trying to do now, what Anna and I are trying to do as we enter our next decades, and my business have really mapped onto decades and I've grown up with them, I suppose, is to do it differently. And so the plan around better life and is that we can come up with ideas. We're good at fundraising. We're very good at understanding how to commercialize businesses and how to create buzz. And, you know, we're pretty backable because we've delivered great outcomes in the past, but we don't want to be the founder CEOs of these businesses because also from a purpose perspective, we want to empower more female founders to found businesses. So what I'm hoping in my 50s is that I, and also I love lifetime learning, that sounds trite, but you know, that's interesting for me. So learn how to be a chair, learn how to be a sort of co-founder, but not a CEO, learn how to sit on big boards. I'm just about to join a big board, which hasn't been announced yet, but that again is interesting for me because I think it's part of morphing from, because I've gone from I've grown scale businesses very significantly, so I can do a lot, right? I can go from I've had an idea through to the, I don't want to operate at the I've had an idea stage anymore as an operational CEO, but I think I've got a lot of expertise that can be both shared with others, but also be a massive accelerant for businesses where I'm deploying my capital and others. Also, I love AJ. I mean, people find that really boring. Also, I think because we're two women, people slightly hope we kind of hate each other, but we go on holiday together. And so she is just the yin to my yang. She's brilliant at loads of things I'm crap at. We have a laugh. We're very, very good at seeing the funny side in shitty things. And that kind of gets us through. So I want to do work with her, but also we do work separately. So all that stuff hopefully scopes the how do you go again. You know, what's the downside? What's the real, real? It hasn't always made me healthy or happy. I got really, really sick last year and I have, you know, I was in hospital for quite a long time. That was a bit of a wake up call that I've always prioritized outcomes and performance over everything else. I'm very hard driving. I don't get enough sleep. I wake up super early. I exercise every single day. 
I don't eat a ton of food. I, you know, I push myself and I have to change that. Up. You can't keep living like that because ultimately um, burnout again, there are certain things I hate, pivot, burnout, but you know, it just didn't make me very well. A big part of my Albright life, which sounds extremely glamorous, but was actually shit, which is where I flew to LA twice a month for a day and a half, was pretty vile. And I think there are lessons, big lessons in there about how you scale a global business and what it means. And there are some huge problematic compromises that come with your actual life. And I've been a single mum since my kids were one and three. And that is not always straightforward when you're looking at how you work and grow things. So some of that is real. There have been moments, as everybody has, of self-doubt, of exhaustion, of thinking, why am I doing this? Particularly as you keep on with it and it's not so much about the money and the way it used to be. Um, My kids have been pissed off with me. It's hard on relationships. You know, like it's just really real. There's the gloss, there's the the exits and the book and the thing and the frock and the hair and the and then there's how it really is and it's hard. But ultimately, I am extremely glasses half full, and I'm I don't have to work that hard at that. I have no short term memory. Neither does AJ. That's one of our jokes. Can't remember how shit it was the day before. And I'm very focused on what gives me energy and I get energy through new things, through ideas and through working with cool people and through being in the world. You know, it matters. This standing for something is a big part of it. So that kind of gets me through. But I wouldn't want anyone to think it's glossy and shiny. I've been in lots of situations where there's been a thousand pounds left in the bank account. We've got payroll to pay and, you know, like all the shit. And in some ways it gets easier because things that are really difficult in your first business, specifically if you're scaling up a business, raising money, get easier, right? Because you've got more of your own, because you've got a track record, because you're backable. For AJ and I, within reason to do an angel round for the better menopause is not, you know, we can do it. But then the risks are higher, the expectations are greater, pressure on yourself is harder. You know, you've got to be in the arena and I like to be in the arena. And so then you have to suck the rest of it up within reason. Yeah. And thank you for sharing all that. I think sometimes, I think from the outside, it would be easy to to think, oh, Debbie's just nailed it consistently and life is so good and how amazing. But actually the reality is your success has not come up without becoming ill, having all the challenges that everyone listening to this, all the aspiring or early stage founders are probably going through. So I think it's great that we can talk about that openly. One other thing I would say this is really boring thing to say, but routine is what gets me through and discipline, mental discipline and physical discipline. So I get up at the same time every day. I train every single day. I'm very regimented around that. I write my list. I put it in the book. I cross it out. I do that. When things feel like they're falling apart and they have for me in lots of ways and and lots of times, your routine is a great comfort and your self-discipline physically and mentally is your gift to yourself. And it does sit with you because again, this isn't very popular maybe as a thing to say, but nobody's going to do it for you. They're just not. And when shit things happen, this is my my grandmother's voice. My family's full of very tough women. Are you going to lie on the road and cry or are you going to get up and get your heels and makeup on and deal with it? 
And I've absolutely had that in my upbringing and DNA, that you get dressed up and you go out and you make it happen because nobody's coming to save you. No one's coming to save you. No man's coming to save you. No one's coming to save you. It's on you, right? So, and that has its own consequences because it makes you very independent, but we didn't really need to go into that. But I think it's more, I don't want anyone to think I don't feel it. I don't want anyone to think it hasn't happened. I just go back to basics. I get into my routine. I get my heels on and I go out and I do what I have to do, even if I don't feel like it, even if the world feels like it's imploding because no one's coming to save you apart from you. I love that. And I think it's really important advice. And it might be tough for people to hear, but it's just the reality. And we you have to take accountability at the end of the day. And I think as founders, we talked about how sexy startup life is now. But I also think that sadly, it can attract the wrong types of people that just fundamentally aren't meant to be founders. And they really can't handle some of the the horrible bits of it. Whereas I think by being very honest about these things in this forum, I'm hoping it will, the right people will be inspired to go out there and will be able to handle the difficult days and that people that aren't meant to be founders won't become them because there's lots of other options for you. I just think it's really important to just be honest about that. There's still lots I want to talk about, Debbie. So I just wanted to touch a bit more on Albright before we talk about your latest ventures. I know that you, the first clubhouse opened its doors on International Women's Day in, in 2018. I'd imagine in the early days, you, you mentioned the beast it became, but I'd imagine there were quite a few skeptics in the early days. So do you mind telling us a bit about how you convinced those skeptics that there was a, a real business here and kind of just some a bit more about some of those early days, the challenges and successes? Well, anything that's by women and for women will always be a bumpy road. And I really enjoyed every conversation with a man who thought he was the first person to ever tell me that what I was doing was in fact really sexist because nobody had ever said that before. So there was a lot of that that went on. And that's just hygiene. To some extent, we're replicating a pre-existing business model because that was the time. And there was a business in the US called The Wing that had been backed by WeWork that had already landed in a very early way. This notion that female-centric space was something that women wanted and needed and that if women could build up better networks where physical space stood for something, that was both powerful and a great business. So actually, the skeptics around was this a thing had been slightly de-risked by someone in the US being about six months ahead of us. And really what we were doing on a very basic level with the property was taking pre-existing space and making it more attractive for landlords. So there was always a sort of sell around that. We definitely tapped into a moment where women felt that was what they needed. To some extent, me too and time's up with the wind beneath our wings. If you can think back to that time, 2018, 2019, women were angry. Women wanted to be together. They wanted spaces that focused on them. And they wanted to supercharge their careers, sometimes alongside men and sometimes adjacent to men. So it was a slightly different time where, and this slightly depresses me actually, where maybe people now think those conversations have been had or those battles have been won. They haven't. But I think in 2018, 2019, they haven't really been had yet. So all of those things were important. Alongside that, I'm always focused on where's the money. And I think there's no new business model under the sun, right? So there's a Soho House and everybody else, we work had a business model around space. Masterclass meets LinkedIn had a business model around content. And magazines like Elle and Vogue had business models around commercial partnerships and sponsorship. AJ, my co-founder, had was the CEO of her, so she'd run all the money. So 
in that sense, we were like, okay, we see the mission. Where's the money? It's money in space. There's money in digital subscription. Adrian and I run that those businesses for half our lives. And there's money in attracting her, which is what we described as smart-minded, ambitious women, getting them in one place, and then finding brands and organizations that wanted to reach her and developing content solutions, either physically, because the buildings were just a content platform, they just happened to be space, or digitally. So that's how we got there. That sounds really easy. It was really hard, not least when all of our buildings shut and our revenue zeroed overnight. And I thought that was the end of my glittering career. So, you know, it was a very challenging business during the pandemic. But my big lesson learned from that, and as we move on to the Better Life company, which is very focused on developing products and services, B2C and B2B that target her, still her, but 35 to 60 year old women, which is, you know, our real core demographic. We sit in the middle of it. We've got personal brands separately and together. So we're very known for that space. Um, What I want to do now is focus on really simple business models, (laughs) which is why our first business is a supplements business, right? Because Albright became a beast because I had to, because the big mainstay of his revenue was totally screwed by the pandemic. So we were scrabbling around for the, so we're good at that because we're, we've got hustle and because we understand how money is made, but I'm hoping that this next generation of businesses can be simpler. Yeah. Love that. Well, it's a perfect segue to come on and talk about the work you're doing with WJV LLP with uh, Anna Jones. So do you mind talking a bit about the, I guess there are going to be people listening to this will be super excited at the idea of you investing in them and their businesses. So yeah. do you mind sharing like the archetypal founder or organization and any of the, just a bit about any of the investments you made today and what you're most proud of so far? So look, to be really clear on that, I've done tons of angel investing. I think it's important. And I'm in some great businesses like Tala, which is Grace Beverly's business or LV. But like, yeah, we're not doing that anymore because it's so distracting to have really small stakes in other people's businesses. You know, I'll never say never, but I don't know. I don't feel that that's our value. Mine and Anna's value is to own bigger stakes in fewer things where we can deploy our money to get a business off the ground, which is either our idea with Joe Lyle, the better menopause, or somebody where we're co-creating a business like we're doing with the Better Life Company and the events platform and the podcast, everything that's coming with that. So this is not a shout out to say, come and ask me for 20 grand for your business because I've done it for too long and it doesn't really work for us. What this is to say is for the Better Life, what we're looking for is women who want to become entrepreneurial CEOs, who can co-create businesses with us and where we can incentivize them through equity and through salary to come in and run it for us. And that was absolutely how we've been co-creating the Better Menopause with Joe. And we're very focused on businesses that target 35 to 60-year-old women. So ideas, thoughts, yeah, come find us for sure. Um, WJV is kind of the unfinished business from Albright where we invested our own venture capital fund. Female GPs, are still in the minority. So you have in the vast minority, 2% of partners and venture capital funds are female. So we want to get more female GPs to be able to raise their funds. And we are very good fundraisers because 
if you're going to do these multiple businesses to exit, you have to be really good at raising money. And specifically, you've got to be good at persuading men to give you money because men are the pen holders. So again, looking at where is business model, we want to help more female VCs get funded. And we've been working on some of those projects. So reasons come and talk to us now. If you're kicking something around or you want to be a founder you're in, in that space, and if you're trying to raise capital as a female investor, then come and find us and come find us about interesting stuff too. That's our area of focus because the piece of work post Albright was because it was a kind of a tsunami of incoming, right? And it's hard, particularly if you're a yes person where you can find anything interesting. Anna and I have that in common. You're like, oh, I could do this. I could do that. I could it? And it's like, okay, we need to focus. I, we want to write personal checks for things where we are majority shareholders. We want to incentivize more women to get started. We want to help female VCs raise money. And then in terms of sector, we're very focused on health, wellness, emotional well-being. And AJ does lots of work in media because she was the CEO of a big media business. So we can flex separately, but together we see that as being our real multiplier effect. Love that. Well, I feel like we have to talk a bit more about the Better Menopause, which you've effectively co-founded and invested in. And it's clearly something you're very passionate about. And we've seen a, a real rise in, in awareness and more conversations about menopause, the symptoms of it and the effect it has on women in the workplace. Why is it taking so long for this to become a topic and more of our consciousness? Uh, what have been your learnings through the journey of sort of building the business and sort of uh, being there from day one? I think women's health is utterly deprioritized in terms of conversation and investment, full stop, across the board. So I think that's sort of piece number one. I think number two, even though it's going to happen to every woman and most men are going to be affected by the women in their life going through it, it was just never discussed. And it was certainly not discussed in my household at all. And I think this whole concept around perimenopause which we now talk about, we've only really talked about for a year and a half or two years, which is not a thing. And I think wondering why you feel a bit crap in your early 40s is very hard to figure out. I think for me and AJ, there's a personal journey with it where I've never thought about it or talked about it. If you're hard driving, I'm not sure you necessarily are that connected with how you feel personally anyway, because if anybody had asked me, particularly during the pandemic and Albright, so I would have been 46. Seven, how are you feeling would have gone <laughs> pretty shit how we all feel you know it's not like time but it's very difficult to put your finger on why right so it's only when you have a bit of time and you see doctors you figure out that's part of what's happening so we're good at having difficult conversations we're good at raising the profile of a topic but we want solutions we don't just want to be spokespeople I think the work that Celebrities have done in this space, particularly Davina McCall, Mariella Frost, Lisa Snowden. A lot of the women we're working with in the better menopause is important, but they're not doctors. And to some extent, they're not really business people either. So figuring out how we do that in terms of what that business can do, that science driven is really important, but also having the conversation for women at work, which is what we're known for, really matters. So we're learning every day. We've developed the first supplement, which is the first probiotic for perimenopausal menopausal women. It's called the Better Gut with Dr. Harper, who's the big menopause doctor, partly because Joe, who is our co-founder, is a clinical nutritionist who also used to run a big part of WPP. She has been aware for a long time about the connection between gut health and menopause symptoms. I wasn't. You know, I've heard of gut health, I've heard of the gut brain continuum, I've heard of Tim Spetch, I've heard the Zoia. It was only when I 
was recovering from being ill last year and I've been on antibiotics for so long that when I was having all these tests and the doctor said to me, well, of course, your gut bacteria is totally trash, so your perimenopause symptoms are going to be worse. I'm like, whoa, stop. Say that again. Is that a thing? Why don't I know about it? Like, I feel like I know a reasonable amount of stuff. I'm kind of the person that people come to for my little black book and who should they, but I don't know about that. So that I think was a moment with Joe to co-create this business and with Dr. Harper and the Better Guts, the first product, but we're looking at lots of other things to do with sleep, to do with mood, to do with bloating and energy management and a lot of these things that we're only just getting our heads around. You know, there are 38 perimenopause symptoms and I was not aware of them a year ago. So I think we're in, it's a very fast growth sector where we're all learning, where awareness is building. And I think science-driven products and a community to support women is really important. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing that. I guess final question on on this topic is just there's going to be leaders listening to this that uh, want to support their employees and partners going through the menopause, but won't know where to start. So do you have any advice, particularly for founders and leaders or people leaders in businesses about what they can do to be more aware and be more supportive? Well, do check out the Better Menopause, I would say that. But, you know, um, the website, the Shopify, the Instagram and all the rest of it, there's a lot of information on there. I think there are some really good books. I think Mariella Frostjop's book and Davina McCall's book are good and interesting. And I think there's much more to come. And there are also some platforms like Hertility and others that are going into corporates to help provide awareness and training. But, you know, I was at a family do yesterday and with my brother, who's a very sort of well, he's grown up in a matriarchy, so he's, he's used to these conversations. And my brother's wife was saying to him, oh, you know, you need to know about And my brother goes, what's the one page I can read? It's very my brother thing to say. One of the things I'm very focused on is how can we educate and drive awareness at pace? And how can we create real understanding quickly? Because nobody's quite got the, just as I don't have the time and energy to wade through loads of, so I think more on that to emerge from ours because that feels important. No, great. Thank you, Debbie. Before we get to our three wrap-up questions, I've got to ask you about the process of exiting because it is something that is just incredible and you've done it multiple times. I wanted to ask firstly, did you always have an eye on the exit? Was that always the point like when you started your businesses or did some of it come more organically? And I'd also just love to hear how you felt in those different moments. Was the feeling very different depending on the exit? So I've only ever built something to sell it. I think it's extremely important and particularly for women to think and talk about money I did another podcast Grace Beverly's podcast and one of the things I talked about there was I'm not in it for the fun I'm in it to make money and I'm being a bit sort of controversial by saying but yes it's a journey and it's a thing but can we just focus and talk about that and that means I am building a thing that will make money to sell it to someone because as soon as you take investment capital the contract is that you will multiply that investment to drive a return. So if you're not obsessing about that every day, don't raise money. There are plenty of other ways to build and run businesses that don't require taking capital from others. There are some amazing lifestyle businesses out there that are hugely successful run by friends of mine who maybe have a better time than I do. But as soon as you take any money from anyone, you're looking to multiply that through selling. So we shouldn't beat around the bush around that. And for the better menopause, I'm thinking... Again, I always go, I see the opportunity. This is really important, but I think it's going to be a really growing space where we can make some money. Hence, I'm going to go and raise money from others and write my own personal checks. So I think that's very important from the beginning. How do you feel? I mean, look, it's an awful process. 
it's super stressful and time consuming and it goes on for far too long and you never know it's going to be done. And I had a friend who was meant to be signing a, a deal this Friday and it fell through at the weekend. I mean, it's awful. And there's lots of that. And it's very different mentally to anything else because you're trying not to spend the money, but you're close to the money. Plus, there's just a lot of dissonance between the process and operational excellence because you're totally distracted. The team's distracted, but it's the most important time for you to hit the numbers and everybody's running around doing other stuff. It's really hard. And you get to a mood mode where it, which I would class as the sort of, we're not changing the light bulbs mode, you know, where you're trying to make the numbers look as good as possible. And it's all a bit awful, which is why incentivizing your team at every level with equity is really important because you can't expect people to pull hard towards this outcome if they're not going to share in the upside. It feels strange, amazing. Economic independence is super important for anyone, but very important for women. You feel like you've lost your identity and you don't realize how much your identity is tied up with the business. That was particularly the case with Albright. And you feel a bit lost, which is why I kind of keep going, because what else would I do? I think you feel, I mean, it depends what deal you're doing, but for Love Home Swap, for example, and in the Albright deal, we left, you know, we left. Just the sea change, the physical and mental sea change from the extreme busyness of lawyers' documents every five minutes and doing this and doing that and, you know, and constant to nothing is very weird. And a lot of people get depressed, which is understandable because depression fills a vacuum, right? So that's partly why I just have to keep going with new things because I'm not built to do nothing. My brain's too active and my self-esteem is tied up with standing for something and making things happen. And I think the older you get, the more you realize that. And therefore having, like some people just sod off to the beach for two years and I'm really in awe of them, but that's just not me. So having some other stuff that you're starting to think about or lining up or people to hang out with, I feel that's quite important too. Totally. Thank you so much, Debbie. We're sadly at an end. We've got our three wrap-up questions. This is 40 Minute Mentor. So if you could be mentored by anyone, dead or alive, who would it be and why? I think I've been very fortunate to come across some amazing women like Stephanie Shirley and Anne Cairns. They're two that I would mention. I don't know if you know who they are. Stephanie Shirley. Yeah, Stephanie Shirley is amazing. Who's an extraordinary person. And I think any time I get with her is incredible. And Anne Cairns, who was the president of MasterCard. Again, they're both women who have done it 20, 25, 30 years before I did. And I can't think how hard that was. Stephanie Shirley, who was known as Steve Shirley, because she had to take on a male identity to get there to build her tech business. So anything I can sit and listen to from them or lots of other amazing women who have done it before me is extremely valuable and important. Great one. That's not the first time she's been mentioned as well. She's a dream guest for me. Just an incredible, incredible story. This series, we've been letting our audience know that you've been coming on. We asked them to send some questions in. So if you could just pick one, two or three, we'll see what your mystery question is. Two. Two. Okay. What do you ultimately want to be remembered for? We haven't done it yet, but I think this point that I keep coming back to about making it normalized for women to found businesses, making it normalized for girls to say they want to be entrepreneurs, normalizing more women writing investment checks, 
it's kind of shifting, but not quickly enough. And I've still got quite a lot of years to go. So I'd like the UK to be an amazing place to be a female entrepreneur. I owe this country a lot. My family do too. I feel very British, despite not coming from here. You know, who comes from anywhere, I suppose. So that feels to me like a really important goal and purpose. Totally. Thank you, Debbie. And finally, if there's one piece of advice you could leave our listeners with today, what would it be? The thing that I often think about that keeps me going is what's the worst that can happen. And the flip of that is a kind of always roll the dice. So I talk about being in the arena and I mean it. Sometimes the worst decision is no decision. And I feel like there are never any bad outcomes. It's just how you deal with it. So think to yourself, what's the worst that can happen and just go for it. Perfect quote to end this on. Debbie, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you for sharing your incredible career story with us and your really inspiring mentorship. And I wish you all the very best for all the various initiatives you've got going on at the moment. I'm sure our audience will be excited to follow uh, and see all the success you're going to have. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for tuning into today's episode. If you're enjoying this series of Fortunate Mentors so far, then please do consider subscribing and leaving us a review on ratethispodcast.com forward slash 40mm. It really does help us spread the word and help make business mentorship even more accessible. That's all again from us today, but please make sure you tune in again next week for more pocket-sized mentorship.